They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. We're recording this interview on March 10th, two days before the first state leader level meeting of the Quad. High time for another Aussie show on China Talk. Professor Rory Medcalf, longtime Australian diplomat and intelligence officer, for the past five years has headed up the National Security College at Australian National University. We'll be discussing his recent book, Contest for the Indo-Pacific. Co-hosting with me today is Megan Lambert, Resource Associate for the Technology and National Security Program at CNAS. I want to thank CNAS for partnering with China Talk to bring you this episode. Rory, why did you open your book with a Modi Abe Shinkansen joyride? I wanted to capture a sense of the dynamism and the movement of really what's been happening in the Indo-Pacific in recent years. I think readers respond much better to something visceral like that, whether it's something to do with the, in this case, it was literally uh, a ride on a Japanese bullet train on a Shinkansen where Modi and Abe, according to my sources, had a really profound conversation about the future geopolitics of the region, even to the point of sharing maps and spending hours, having a a real heart-to-heart on the the division of labour between their countries in, in balancing Chinese power. That's much more real, if you like, than simply talking about international relations theory. Rory, what do you think were the train rides that should have happened between Asian leaders over the course of the 20th century? Look, I think that there were lots of missed opportunities in the second half of the 20th century to build the region that we want. There's lots of good things that have happened. My book is partly a retelling of the history of how the Indo-Pacific, an Asia-centric region, but not only Asia, built an order after the Second World War and after the Cold War, an order that is now under great challenge. So there were plenty of good meetings that did happen, but what did we miss out on? Look, certainly there were opportunities for India and China to build some kind of relationship of genuine mutual respect that essentially didn't happen. There are opportunities for my country, for Australia, to have got in maybe a little bit earlier in recognising the real constellation of partners we had in the region. For decades there, we didn't have the relationship with India that we need. We now do have it. And in fact, Australia has become a bit of a leading edge player on that. And I guess certainly in recent years, there have been times when I think the United States uh, has uh, missed the boat or the train or the plane or whatever it might be in bolstering some of its Southeast Asian partners like Indonesia. But the good news is this, there's now, I think, of a refreshed sense of goodwill in much of the region towards American engagement. So really, the big question is, what are the long conversations, the deep conversations that have to happen soon and now? Sure. Before we... I, I jumped the gun a little bit because I do don't, I, I don't want to elide over the fascinating cart- cartographic history which you engaged in the, in, in the first chapter or two of this book. Hard to do justice on a podcast, but we're going to try. What about the sort of conception of the Indo-Pacific? Did you find interesting over the course of researching how the region was represented represented on maps over time? The book is partly about maps because maps are about power in the end. Maps are about the power relations that are imagined at any point in history by those those people, those governments, those commercial interests or whoever it might be that, that use the damn things. And fascinatingly, as I researched the way the region has been imagined, not just over the past few hundred years, but over the past few thousand years, I guess I reached a a view that something like the Indo-Pacific, in other words, a really broad, inclusive, two-ocean, maritime-dominated conception of Asia or an Asia-centric region, that's actually been the norm throughout history. And just to make that real for your listeners, if you look at maps from, say, the early European colonial era in Asia, in in, in the Indo-Pacific. What do you see? Maps that not only have plenty of sea monsters and mermaids and all these fantastic decorations that I think we've lost, frankly, in in modern map making, although 
I find the Chinese Nine Dash line almost as fascinating a piece of mythology. But you also see in some of these old maps from the 16th century, for example, a very practical, surprisingly contemporary understanding of what the region is, a focus on connectivity across the two oceans, a focus on the the seaports and the centres of maritime or, or population along the coastline, and really importantly, maps consistently from really the, let's say, the 16th century right through to the present day include in the one frame of reference not only maritime Southeast Asia, the heart of the Indo-Pacific, South China Sea, Indonesia and so forth, but also Australia, the Indian Ocean, and indeed right across to North America. One of the starting arguments of the book, and something that I was actually quite surprised by in the research, how consistent the evidence was throughout history, is that this has never been a narrowly conceived region. The idea of it just being East Asia or just being even the Asia-Pacific, the, the handy invention we had in the, the late 20th century, has actually not been the norm. And importantly, it's not been, it's never been a China-centric or China-dominated region, even during the long eras of Chinese dynastic and imperial history. And that... I think holds really important lessons for the present. And- so, so Rory, I'm going to make the Korea map the cover art for this episode, just because I thought it was my favorite. Maybe you do 30 seconds on that. What was striking to you? Yeah, that's the Kangnido map from 1402, which was a a Korean map. So obviously, all these most of these maps were you know the property of the rich and powerful. So it was a Korean royal map of the region as understood from the Korean Peninsula. Now, this was actually, as far as we can tell, a bit of a composite of Asian and European understandings of the world because there was a lot of, even before the Western colonial era, a lot of human and commercial and even some political contact between these regions. And this map showed, apart from other things, of course, an enormous career in a very small Japan, so you know, a bit of politics of the day. But more importantly, it showed continental Asia, uh, certainly China, Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent as, as a very dominant frame at the heart of the map. It showed the coastlines around continental Asia as an equally dominant frame. So it's almost an early vision of the Belt and Road, sea and land, both important. But it connected the region of strategic interest and economic interest, most importantly, I think, to East Asia as encompassing the Southeast Asian archipelago, the Indian Ocean, India, because that coastline of India and Southeast Asia was absolutely vital to all of this commerce, and strikingly, all the way to Africa, a rather small Africa, an Africa that we may not recognise quite today, but clearly even the east coast of Africa mattered. And so that map was useful apart from anything else because it demonstrated that these were not just Western or colonial constructs, that in fact the pre-colonial Indo-Pacific was this diverse, large, multipolar region and was being imagined as such by clearly uh, very Asian powers. Rory, in the book you mentioned 1947 Asian Relations Conference. Can you just tell us the backstory about that event and why it was uh, a quote-unquote false spring for Asian unity? Megan, thank you. I'm loving all the sort of hidden history that the podcast is bringing out because these are some of my favourite parts of the book and I assume they weren't the bits that contemporary strategists or policymakers would be seizing on, but actually they do hold lessons because I think, just to make a general point first, the understanding and the retelling of history at the moment is of vital strategic importance. China's investing billions in in a lot of that, including a, a hell of a lot of myth-making. And so it's really important for us to revisit our own conceptions of the region and the much richer, deeper currents of regional history that actually lend themselves to new forms of cooperation in balancing Chinese power and in preventing, frankly, anyone dominating the Indo-Pacific. So that's a long way of saying that we think of regionalism in Asia as being all about ASEAN and Southeast Asia and all of the ASEAN-centric institutions. And we know that certainly in the, the 1990s, for example, there was this enormous East Asian push, if you like, which China sometimes has co-opted of Asia for the Asians, but it being very East Asian and not really privileging India or South Asia. 
or indeed allowing space for non-Asian powers to be part of the Indo-Pacific. In fact, as I said, although just as there was a, an Indo-Pacific flavour, a two-ocean flavour to the region that uh, we knew before and during the colonial era, in the pushback against colonialism, in the independence movements and in all of the, the wealth and intellectual wealth and diversity of Asian nationalism that we saw in the early 20th century, there was also this very inclusive vision of the region And for me, that's epitomised in the 1947 Asian Relations Conference, which was the first attempt to build some kind of regional dialogue. It was in Delhi. It was really the brainchild of the Indian independence movement of Nehru and Gandhi and their crew. And it was incredibly inclusive in the way that it tried to build a conversation about the future of the region at the end of the Second World War, at the start of decolonisation. You had everyone from, uh, obviously, the independence movements of particularly Indonesia, which took a huge delegation and, of course, was in the middle of fighting its war of independence uh, against the Dutch. So a lot of the delegations were also involved in uh, conflicts at the time. You had both the French colonial power and the the Vietnamese resistance movements, nationalist movements represented. And in fact, what I may not have recounted in the book is that some of the Vietnamese nationalist delegates were killed on their way to the conference and had to be replaced by new delegates. You had an independent Tibetan delegation that that walked the whole distance from Lhasa to, to Delhi, walked through the snowy passes of the Himalayas to get there. You had the Chinese nationalists, not the Chinese communists represented. You didn't have the Japanese because the Americans at that stage insisted that they didn't have the right to be there. And you had Australia. So in many ways, you had most of the members of what is now the East Asia Summit or now the ASEAN Regional Forum present at that conversation. And in the sidelines of that meeting, you actually had a lot of the original thinking about the formation of ASEAN. So the Southeast Asian representatives at that, in fact, used the Asian Relations Conference as a bit of an incubator to build this Southeast Asian caucus that 20 years later became ASEAN. It was a false spring because... In the end, India and China found themselves at loggerheads. In the end, with the arrival of the Cold War and the very North Atlantic-centric nature of much of that conflict and the inward turn of the Chinese and Indian economies and all of the chaos that engulfed Asia over the next 20 years, you didn't get that solidarity followed through. But it, it planted a seed that I think we can track all the way through to the regional institutions we have today and it had a critical place for India, which India is now trying to reclaim. The real niche question, which we might cut out, but I read two books about Thai history, so I have to ask, what was Thailand doing at the time? Were they invited? Are, are monarchists not cool? That is a really good question. Look, I, I'm pretty sure there was a Thai presence. In fact, I'd have to pull the book off the shelf now and double check because there were certainly all sorts of, for example, I think there was a Mongolian presence. So there was uh, there was great diversity. I'm pretty sure there was a Thai presence. But in fact, to be honest, Thailand isn't recorded as having, or Siam isn't recorded as having a particularly activist role at that point. I suspect they were keeping their heads down and hedging as they often have done so well. So in relation to the 1947 conference, why did India fall off the map I'd like to think it's very much back on the map. Look, a few factors, I think, firstly, and and, and of course this occurred, incidentally, the conference was actually held before the the full saga and drama and chaos and ultimate victory of Indian independence. So, in fact, India was on this deadline, on this very tight British-run schedule towards independence, but in fact it wasn't at that stage the Indian independent state that was hosting the conference. It was the Indian independence movement that was hosting the conference. And I think the British were a bit perplexed, both participants and observers. Why didn't India seize the opportunity? Look, I think that going forward from there, we had a number of factors. Obviously, the enormous, I wouldn't say distractions, but the enormous priorities of building an effective and durable independent Indian democracy after 1947 and obviously the convulsions of the communal violence, the wars with Pakistan and so forth, all of that would have slowed things down. The creation of the non-aligned movement during the Cold War, because in a sense the Bandung Conference, I think in 1955, the Bandung Conference in Indonesia was in some ways a successor 
to the Asian Relations Conference. But by then, India and Indonesia were squarely part of the non-aligned movement or establishing the non-aligned movement in the Cold War. And so we're looking much more globally rather than regionally and looking at really how they could build what essentially became the Global South and non-aligned movement during the Cold War, rather than looking necessarily inclusively at the region. And of course, that came with new levels of mistrust between the United States and allied powers, democracies, Australia and others against India. And then finally, the absolute breakdown of relations between India and China culminating in the 1962 war. So we had several decades of lost opportunity. And when regionalism began to be rebuilt, it was happening from Southeast Asia at the one on the one hand, but also from the US-Japan or US-Japan-Australia, Asia-Pacific corner on the other hand. Those two converged in the 1990s. India eventually came back into the tent, now has an opportunity to take more of a lead, but again, has enormous other challenges on its Roy, do you have a book recommendation for mid-century Asian relations that, that covers this type of stuff in more detail? Look, I don't think there is a single book, and I think there's an enormous, there's an enormous amount of specialised, often quite niche material. And I think, to be honest, a lot of the, the, the new histories coming out about India and Indian external relations, the work that Srinath Raghavan is doing, for example, several books now, really, for the first time, I think, very objectively telling a lot of Indian history. I think Tanvi Madan's very good book on the India-China-US triangle, they're all part of the puzzle. A lot of the Southeast Asian histories have been a little bit too insular and Southeast Asia-centric. No, I don't think that... I think that book is yet to be written, to be honest. And your sense is... I I imagine the reason why is because this is a a sort of concept that's rising now. So it wasn't quite as much in the bloodstream for a number of decades. I think a lot of the... There was a bit of a parochialism to a lot of the the different narratives about regional history over the years where you had some very deep subject matter specialists who'd focus just on their country or their immediate sub-region and it does take time to look back and see in fact there were currents to what appeared to be a lot of parallel play in regional institution building and diplomacy that in fact perhaps they didn't have an internal logic that was bringing them together but if you look back over the last 70 years now you can, I think, make a case that we were building towards what is usefully for now an Indo-Pacific framework. It might evolve again, and it's really important to be resurrecting and, re, I guess, retelling some of that history now precisely because the narrative is part of the geopolitical battle. So, Rory, you alluded to earlier the Australian hesitancy to engage in this in in this project. Can you let's do it? Let's little, do a little tour through history from the Aussie side. What were the uh, what were the hesitations and roadblocks? Well, actually, look. So, my Australian colleagues will is their hackles at this because, in fact, Australia is very proud of its huge degree of activism as a regional player. And in my book, I do recount a number of occasions where Australia was either active in building regional institutions or, as this awful cliche is, punching above its weight. But I still think there were some missed opportunities in that as well. And I think the main one was that we... And it wasn't just Australia's fault, it was India as well. The main missed opportunity I've seen, and this is having worked as a diplomat in New Delhi literally at the turn of this century, is that it took much longer for Australia and India to find their partnership than should have been the case. I'd say it took much longer for Japan and India to do the same as well. Where credit is due for Australia and where, for example, Australia has effectively been an early mover, certainly on the Indo-Pacific recently, I think the last eight years. And remember that the Australia was the first country in the world to formally, if you like, redefine its region in government policy as the Indo-Pacific eight years ago. And Australia's been very active in trying to build creative new coalitions in this region ever since. Australia was active back in the 1980s on the establishment of APEC, Australia-Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. In fact, you could argue that Australia was the indispensable player in building that institution. So there have been some good stories too, but I think that before then we had some hesitancy in, in the 60s and 70s because Australia was seen as this strange hybrid of is it a Western country, is it an offshoot of Britain, is it a multicultural democracy, which we very much we are, is it almost an Asian country? And it's taken us a long time to work through those 
identity issues, that's actually why perhaps sometimes our early regional initiatives weren't fully accepted and we had to work twice as hard to pursue them. Perhaps also sometimes why uh, we hesitated when we saw countries like India or Indonesia take their own independent path. But all of this adds up to now why the Indo-Pacific is such a useful concept for Australia because it redefines the region in a way where we automatically belong and we automatically have a pretty significant voice. Rory, can you make the like subtext text for folks who don't know anything about Australian history, the, the sort of immigration policies and, and, and whatnot? Australia today, I'd say uh, perhaps along with Canada, and we can argue about the United States another time, I think Australia today is pretty much the world's most successful multicultural democracy. More than half of the Australian population was either born in another country or has a parent who was born in another country. And more than a quarter of the population was born in another country. A lot of the fastest growth areas in our population from the region. And so, for example, India is in any given year typically the largest source of growth in migration in Australia. China has been very big as well, of course, although that's a very diverse China, including Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, and I suspect there'll be more from Hong Kong in the years to come. But tracking back, Australia did have a complex and at some points pretty shameful history when it came to relations with the diversity of the human race. Australia was established as a modern state in the 1780s as essentially a a British penal colony and and British settlement with the dispossession of Indigenous uh, people that, that came with that. Australia did have then waves of migration in the 19th century, including Chinese migration at some points, typically British and European migration. Australia had then a pretty shameful policy for much of the 20th century, really until the late 1960s, of privileging migration, so literally a white Australia policy. And I think that's done lasting harm to our identity in the world. But since... Uh, the early 1970s, really, in my own lifetime, you know, in the last 50 years, Australia has rapidly become this very effective multicultural democracy that very effectively brings together and very harmoniously brings together people from all over the world. And that is the Australia that now presents itself to the region, and it's a source of great strength and pride. Rory, last year I did a show with your colleague Yun Jiang, just as the trade actions between China and Australia were heating up. I'm curious, looking back on uh, that episode, how much of a shock has this been to the Australian political system? The story didn't begin last year. We've had this awful year. The world's had an awful year in so many ways, and I think COVID overwhelms and dominates everything. But three shocks hit Australia in 2020. Uh, The first actually was climate. We had catastrophic bushfires destroying a large part of the country. The second shock was COVID, but Australia has coped pretty well with that. In fact, in some ways, embarrassingly, but the big question is what happens when we open our doors? But I'm very proud of the way Australia's handled COVID. I think Gauchi recently said that when Australia has a shutdown, they really do have have a shutdown. But China was the big one long term, I think, in a sense of the three shocks that hit us. China is the strategic shock that will, I think, define a lot of the next 10 years of Australia's engagement with world Australian policy. The China shock for Australia was that from fairly early last year, we started being the subject of a campaign of economic coercion and of diplomatic threats going with that economic coercion. And that's not over. And the trigger for that was claimed to be the position the Australian government took in calling for an independent inquiry into the origins of the the pandemic. I think quite a reasonable thing to ask for, maybe the manner in which we made that statement could have been done, you know, in a, in a less blunt or ragged way. But the actual principle of the thing is, is sound. The important point to note, though, is that this was not China suddenly um, deciding to punish Australia This was, in fact, culmination of years of tension in the Australia-China relationship. And that tension, I think in many ways, is an early warning system for what is happening, will happen or could happen to many other countries. That is, we had got very close to China in a trade sense. We were building close ties comprehensively in some other ways. Obviously, Australia, going to my earlier points about multiculturalism, Australia 
welcomes and has welcomed a large, diverse community of Chinese origin. And so there's a very strong people-to-people connection now between Australia and China, and there are many Australians of Chinese origin, who many of whom obviously understandably feel uncomfortable with the way things have gone. But the important point to note in all of this is that a lot of this began in my view, with Chinese uh, influence, interference, coercion against Australia and the region, with Australia's pushback against that, both independently and as a US ally. Three or four years ago, a whole set of preparatory measures Australia took to protect itself from economic coercion, foreign interference laws, keeping Huawei out of our 5G networks, new rules on investment and so forth. And clearly each of these things irked the Chinese Communist Party irked the Chinese government. The COVID thing last year, the call for an independent inquiry, was in that point the threshold rather than the cause. And Australia is now, I think, standing firm against economic coercion. And I think China is already discovering that it's not quite so easy to achieve some kind of submission out of a self-respecting middle power democracy like Australia. Is there a challenge or development in the Australia-China relationship that feels obvious to you, but that you don't feel gets the attention it deserves more broadly, in the, oh, either a, in the foreign policy community or whoever? Look, that's a great question. There are so many myths about the Australia-China relationship. Australia does have an, an enormous trade reliance on China. That's a fact. It's not a myth. And that is overwhelmingly through one industry, which is the export of iron ore, to China. In fact, a really good question is how sustainable in the long term is that one? Because do we really want our economy in 2050, a generation from now, to be one where we remain overwhelmingly dependent on one commodity to one authoritarian state, no matter how well the Chinese economy continues to grow? So I think one of the myths has been that Australia was so dependent on China in a trade sense that we were inevitably slipping into China's orbit in a political, strategic, diplomatic um, and values sense. That's clearly been disproven by the actions of the past few years. But I would say that we shouldn't... I, I think the corrective that I'd offer to the debate is to say that we haven't gone from being completely in China's pocket to suddenly being China's enemy. Instead, there's still all sorts of texture and nuance to the relationship. I mean, there is a diplomatic cold shoulder, no no question, from China. There are acts of economic coercion against a whole lot of industries, particularly in the agricultural sector, barley, our lobster industry has been badly damaged, our wine industry is being harmed, so please drink more Australian wine at every opportunity. And but you know, but seriously. That stuff, Australia is surviving as a nation is surviving that and already a lot of those industries are finding new markets. But at a social level, at a people-to-people level, there really is, I think, no ill will, no malice politically or culturally or socially between Australian and Chinese people. And I think, I hope, I believe that there's actually enough ballast there to, to, to get us through some tough years What we do have to be doing is now, certainly from a governmental point of view, is ensuring that the diverse communities of Chinese origin in this country receive the respect and the protection that they deserve because, in fact, they're an enormous asset to Australia going forward. And so I think that's that there's a piece of work to be done. Uh, Rory, because you brought it up, I can't help myself but pitching uh, me and Yun's idea of the strategic Shiraz reserve, whereby uh, a handful of like-minded countries worried about Chinese trade aggression of the sort that you saw in the China-Australia context set up some vehicle where you automatically start purchasing these sorts of non-perishable uh, goods that get targeted by China. Yeah, look, I'm not going to offer a serious comment on that one, although I think it's nice to offer to be hosting that in your cellar. But actually, the more serious point is, and this is something that hasn't been resolved, is that right now Australia is facing various acts of geoeconomic coercion. To be honest, none of them are critical to the national economy. They're bad for individual sectors. They're certainly bad for the individuals, the businesses, the families, the communities concerned. So I wouldn't, I have no illusions about that. But I think as a system, Australia is going to get through. Where we do have a problem and where I think other like-minders will, broadly like-minders will have a problem, is that there is not yet enough solidarity among middle powers, among democracies, including with Australia and the United States, 
on on how we anticipate or respond to these threats. What's our playbook for geoeconomic coercion? And in particular, to be honest, how do we prevent and manage and put some restraint on some of our own industries and business communities from taking advantage of one another's hardship. So the fact is that Canadian coal is doing well in China when Australian coal is being sanctioned. I'm assuming that other wine exporting countries are not going to hold back on their exports to, say, China if Australia's um, suddenly put in in the freezer. Now, of course, the answer to this is not that we're all going to constantly be tying our hands or telling our business communities not to get on with um, prosperity. But there do have to be, there does have to be a set of guidelines, a set of principles, and ideally even a a playbook for middle powers and democracies, not just in the Indo-Pacific, but globally. I think the Europeans matter in this a lot. For how do we respond when one of our number is blatantly targeted through economic coercion or indeed hostage diplomacy or some of the other rather nasty measures we've seen in recent years. I'll leave that problem with you to solve. I think I do think officials are talking about it a lot at the moment. I don't think we've got the answer. This leads us to my second hobby horse, which is the NATO for trade, which is going to figure out how to bring oh, the money yeah. from, from our Napa Valley folks living on the lamb and figure out how to support the Australians in their time of need. Jordan, you, you, you've captured it far more articulately uh, than me. NATO for trade. Okay, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Megan, do the, do, do the quad one. Uh, Rory, you've talked a lot about this concept of mini laterals, which I really love. Could you explain what you mean by that? And if you would classify the quad as a mini lateral? Yeah, look, I think minilateralism has gone from being a very obscure boutique term to being something that's quite commonly used in diplomacy now. It's been around for a while. I first encountered it 15, 20 years ago, just showing my age here. But minilateralism is, I think, a really neat way of explaining a middle way between bilateralism and multilateralism in the international relationships our, our, our countries build to manage and support and defend and advocate our interests. Basically, it means small groups. It's essentially small, self-selecting groups who see a problem, who band together to do something about it. I guess it's a slightly more formal version of coalitions of the willing, if you like, although that term has obviously been a bit damaged by some of its past use. Minilateralism is small groups, and the Australian foreign policy white paper simply calls it that. Small groups self-selecting on the basis of interests in common, capabilities that they can bring to the table and not necessarily shared values. I prefer the word principles to values, but some sort of shared basis for their action, whether it's principles they want to defend, whether it's a readiness to work together, a willingness to work together. And minilateralism, there are plenty of examples around there. It could be focused around a particular problem and to be time-limited, a particular crisis, or it could have a longer life and evolve into small, flexible institutions. The Quad is certainly a minilateral organisation, if we can call it that. A minilateral arrangement is probably a more accurate term for it. There are plenty of trilaterals out there that in some ways are stronger and more established minilaterals than the Quad. At what point does minilateralism become multilateralism? There are questions to be answered about inclusion versus exclusion. Would the Quad, for example, ever cooperate with China on something like disaster relief? And does that become a new minilateral? I don't know. But for the time being, I think the Quad and the trilaterals are where the action is in the Indo-Pacific. And in fact, in some ways, China's fixation on the Quad hides the fact that a lot of good work's going on, say, Australia, US, Japan, US, Japan, India, Australia, India, Indonesia, Australia, India, France. There's all sorts of exciting things happening. And that actually provides us with a more agile architecture that can support the often ponderous multilateral organisations that, that, that are necessary, but that have trouble getting the work done. And what lessons do you think the Quad can learn as it's getting started from existing successful minilaterals in your mind? So for me, the most successful minilateral in the Indo-Pacific at the moment is Australia, the United States and Japan. It's been going in one form or another since the early 2000s. It began as a dialogue. I think it kept changing its name from security to strategic because back in those days we were all a bit, we were all a little bit nervous about what it meant. But it's moved to 
very clear arrangements for interoperability, for intelligence sharing, for technology, for infrastructure. And in a way, it's still the really strong triangle within the Quad, because the Quad is really that triangle plus India. What are the lessons? I mean, I think the lessons from that and other minilaterals for the Quad is be careful in balancing rhetoric with reality, be careful with balancing rhetoric with ambition, don't move too fast. I think the Quad is moving reasonably fast now, but that's a reflection of the times. I think also the Quad is catching up on a 10-year gap, if you like, between the Quad 1.0 and Quad 2.0 between 2008 and 2017. The other lesson is don't pretend to be a formal alliance when you're not. So the Australia-Japan-US relationship consists of two alliances, but Australia and Japan are not an alliance, and technically the three of us together are not. Be ambitious but cautious about how you operationalise this stuff. And finally, play with others. I think in many ways Australia, the US and Japan have been very effective precisely because Although we have closer relations with one another than we do with much of the rest of the region, we've used that triangle as a basis for engagement on, for example, the rules and principles that we want to help our ASEAN friends with in the South China Sea, our support for partners in the South Pacific on infrastructure and development. And I don't think that any of the trilateral members are averse to playing in other groupings as well. The Quad, I think, is at a very exciting time with its leaders meeting and so forth. But we want the Quad to be the core of a set of wider arrangements, plugging and playing with, it may sometimes be with, for example, Vietnam and South Korea or Indonesia or New Zealand on COVID issues. Sometimes it may be with the French and the Europeans who are really beginning to show a return to the Indo-Pacific in a good way this time in their willingness to be part of a multipolar order. The Quad will be exercising with the French Navy in the Bay of Bengal, I understand, pretty soon. So the Quad needs to be not the be-all and end-all, and that's uh, the lesson that I would draw. Are there any, of the four countries, are there, is there specific you, advice you'd give to the leaders of particular nations on things they should be concerned or, or, or wary or extra mindful of? Look, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic about the Quad at the moment, and it's not really my role to be offering too much advice to governments, at least other than the Australian government where i'll offer some informal Rory, one Look, of the one of the uh, games we play on china talk is if you're sitting in Zhongnanhai, what would your what would you be telling xi jinping so okay. don't i'm very let's come back to that let let's come back to that because i am very happy to suggest a few few things that i think are in china's interest because i actually do care very much about China's interests. It's just that I'm not sure the Chinese government always sees sees it that way. Look, as for the advice to the Quad leaders, the Quad governments, I'd say, look, the first one is to keep doing what you're doing because we're on a good path. I think India is actually very realistic about the Quad. India recognises the value of the Quad, but it's not looking tomorrow for some kind of miracle alliance. I think we have an enormous opportunity under the Biden administration now to to follow through on, I guess, what happened under the Trump administration, which to look at the, the positive side of it was a recognition that we are now in this era of competition with China, a recognition that there's no shame or embarrassment in, for example, bringing the Quad together. But at the same time, I think a Biden administration is already showing signs of bringing a um, much more comprehensive sense of American engagement to the region, a much greater sense of respect for not only allies, but for all of those middle players, particularly in Southeast Asia, who we really need to work with. So for the Quad, seize the opportunity that the Biden administration brings. And last of all, broaden the agenda. Don't just make this about military issues. Sure, have Malabar pursue interoperability where we can, don't pretend it's an alliance, but get our militaries certainly accustomed to working together for contingencies in future where they may there may be a political decision that they work together. But look more broadly, look at technology, look at the narrative battle, the information space, look at geoeconomics and use the Quad as a call for partnerships with others in that space. And don't step back. <laughs> Rory, plenty of folks have, have been growing increasingly concerned about rise of an illiberal streak within the Modi government. Do you see that as potentially being an inhibitor as the Quad develops in the future? Look, of course, it's a challenge to any kind of engagement with India 
that is based foremost on values. And I think both, again, someone who's lived and worked in India and keeps sort of a strong interest in, in, in the direction of India, has a lot of friends there. I am dismayed by some of the developments in, in, in recent years. I also think that India has a lot of its own antibodies for dealing with illiberalism for dealing with, with with this kind of this degree of ideological Hindu nationalism it's actually dealt with this in the past it's harder in some ways this time so look I do worry about that aspect of the direction of India I also think though that India is going to remain and one of its advantages is that it's such a big messy diverse difficult to rule state that can have its own kind of resilience as well so I, I haven't given up on the, the better angels, if you like, of India's political nature. But I do think that other Quad members or indeed other democracies, particularly liberal democracies, engaging with India as a partner should be very careful not to pin all of our hopes on the idea of Indian liberal democracy, but actually the idea of India as a major self-respecting civilizational power in the Indo-Pacific, a country that has to look after the interests of an enormous portion of the human race, as does China in the years to come, and a country that will, for its own reasons, I think, complicate China's power and prevent the dominance of the Indo-Pacific by any one state. And so the word I would use is principles rather than values. I think there are principles on which the Quad and others can and should engage India. And a lot of those principles relate more to behaviour in the international system than necessarily specifics of the the polity at home because that will keep changing. And India's always had problems uh, of one sort or another. It's just that this time round, obviously, there's this ideological edge that makes uh, a lot of us pretty uncomfortable. But the principles by which Indian foreign policy has often guided itself, and I think does guide itself, to do with uh, a strong sense of autonomy and self-respect and sovereignty, actually respects for the rules-based order in many ways. I mean, think, for example, about how India... Uh, and Bangladesh, in a rules-based manner, managed to resolve their maritime boundary difference. Perfect, in fact, a perfect role model for what should be happening in the South China Sea. There are are plenty of ways in which we can play with India, or, for example, for that matter, a country like Vietnam, without asking it to be the same kind of liberal democracy that we are. And, of course, a few of us have had misgivings about the direction of the United States in recent years, although that's that's over for the moment. One can hope. Rory, CNAS's Martin Rasser recently put out a report of which you were acknowledged in the acknowledgements on tech-adjacent policies that Australia could work to push forward in a quad context. And my favorites were human capital and visa liberalization within the quad, as well as quad-wide innovation challenges like the XPRIZE and hacker competitions. And I really hope it gets named QuadCon. Um, your sense of uh, the appetite for, for this sort of thing, working together on, on supply chains as well, another one of the recommendations that he shouted out? Look, so we, we're just feeling our way on this stuff. Martin's report is excellent, and I commend it to um, all of your listeners. Martin's report is actually part of a wider project that is called the Quad Tech Network, which is a thing. It's a, it's a track to initiative that has been established with the support of the Australian government, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and its very, I think, forward-looking cyber ambassador. But this is not intended to just end here. It's meant to be a track two research process where we get really over, I think, and we're moving, I think, to a second stage pretty soon, where we get institutions, think tanks, universities from the Quad countries to really begin mapping points of similarity, points of difference, on tech policy uh, and on our innovation ecosystems and on the way we engage with the world on these issues, but also opportunities for collaboration. And I think in the end, those opportunities, some will be within the quad, some will be bilateral or trilateral, some will be with others. You know, for example, I think we certainly have enormous common interest with, with much of Europe on this. But I think Martin's report's great for pushing the boundaries of ambition. And in fact, if you did look from first principles at the quad, the four quad countries, there are enormous strengths if you look at us in aggregate. In fact, that's one of the reasons the quad is here. There were people, and I was one of them, looking 15 years ago at the map and saying, hang on, there are four countries here who have, in theory, interests and capabilities in common, which if aggregated even loosely would really affect 
the regional balance. We need to take that now to the tech and, and, and human space. There'll be a lot of challenges, but if you do think about Indian human capital, Japanese technology, in America's case, both, and Australia's, I think, actually quite traditional agility in the international diplomatic order when, when we work effectively, and we've got some niche strengths in all of those areas, it, it's actually a potentially powerful mix. It's just that we may find it politically, it's, it can be pretty difficult to prosecute. But let's have the research and the conversation. That's really where Martin's paper sits at the moment. Rory, anything else we didn't get to? Look, there's so much to talk about. You did ask me for some advice for the Chinese leadership, so I guess I should just throw that in for old time's sake. No, well, look, so, and I will just hark back to my book for a moment. And just again, for your listeners, the, the US edition of the book is actually called Indo-Pacific Empire. So I hope they can find it in the shops because Contest for the Indo-Pacific is the Australian edition. Don't ask me why publishers like different titles in different countries. And if someone's bought both books, I owe you um, big time. But because it is the same book. And there is a second edition coming out at the end of this year, which I hope will have a chapter on COVID and the way the last two years have panned out. But the point I wanted to make is that the book, it's not, as some would assume, an anti-China book. It's not saying China will fail. It's not saying that a confrontation with China is the answer to all of our problems. It is an argument that there's going to be a very turbulent phase in regional and global history. We're already in that phase. That's more than a phase, really. It's, a, it's an era. It's going to last maybe 10, 15, 20 years. This is a long game, as, as we would say in, in cricket-loving Australia. This is going to require enormous strategic patience and steadiness and consistency from particularly the democratic powers and also the other middle players in the Indo-Pacific. And I think the point of all that is to signal, to send signals to China about changing its calculations. There was an appetite for reform, and I think there still would be an appetite for reform under different circumstances. And I think there are plenty of great analysts in the Chinese system who know that a China that is set on a path of confrontation with much of the world is going to ultimately fail to fulfil a lot of the objectives that are in the interests of the Chinese people. So I guess in a perverse, strange kind of way, the right calibration of pushback by the middle powers and by the United States, whether sometimes in a leadership role, sometimes in a supporting role, if it's done in a balanced, calibrated way, it's actually helping China in the long run to find the settling point that it needs. The huge question is, can the system, particularly under its current leadership and with its really harsh authoritarian bent of recent years, can the Chinese system recognise that reality or not? And that's the question that I think I'll leave your listeners with. The song I've chosen to, to close our conversation is by fantastic Australian Indigenous singer, Dr G Yudapingu, known as Gurumul, who sadly passed away a few years ago. But this song, which was one of his really greatest hits, also was performed in a historic concert he gave in India in 2012 to really mark the renewed friendship between Australia and India alongside Anushka Shankar. In fact, it speaks of mythological beings visiting northern Australia, probably from the Indonesian archipelago. It may have been based on the, the fact that there were fishermen from Indonesian islands who would visit northern Australia to, to harvest the tripang, the sea cucumber. But it's a beautiful song really about friendship and connection across the sea. So I guess it has an Indo-Pacific quality to it.